I have a dear friend uh, in Vancouver. I, I wish you could meet him. Maybe when Steve goes away again, we'll get him to parachute in and preach a few Sundays here. His name is Richard Topping. He's one of the great leaders of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. He's currently serving as both a professor of the college where I teach in Vancouver, Canada, at the beautiful University of British Columbia, and he's also the principal. Uh, his name, Richard Topping, he once uh, served our largest downtown church in the province of Quebec. Uh, right in downtown Montreal, you'll find uh, a beautiful big steeple church, much like this one, gorgeous interior, uh, although this uh, church that I'm talking of is probably three times the size of Fitzroy. It's a monster church built when there was a large Anglophone population in Montreal that, of course, has diminished over the years. It's called the Church of St. Andrews and St. Paul's. We just call it A&P, like the grocery store. And uh, Richard was in his study one uh, Saturday afternoon. The place was completely quiet. He was the only one in the building. And from his large study, he has a, a beautiful window uh, that looks out onto the circle drive for kind of formal occasions where people would pull in. And all of a sudden, an enormous black limousine pulled into the circle drive. And as a pastor, you do a couple of things in that moment. First of all, you panic, and you think, did I forget about a wedding that I'm supposed to do on a Saturday? It does happen from time to time. And then after you, you check your diary, you think, no, no, it's okay. Then you think, well, who is pulled up in a limousine at the church on a Saturday afternoon? The next thing uh, Richard Topping uh, knew, that the front doorbell was being buzzed, and so being the only one in the building... He went and he opened the door, and standing before him was the famous musician Rod Stewart and his uh, considerably younger girlfriend at the time. And uh, uh, Richard was speechless to be in the presence of Rod Stewart, uh, something that doesn't happen to us as preachers very often, but he was speechless in the moment. And so Rod Stewart spoke first, and he said, well, excuse me, Reverend, uh, but I wonder, uh, we're just driving by your church, and as you probably know, I'm performing tonight in Montreal, uh, but I have a tradition of always visiting a church in whatever city I'm going to perform in and having a time of prayer in the worship space. Who knew? Rod Stewart. Maybe it was the girlfriend at the time having a little influence on him, I'm not sure. Uh, and so Richard quickly found his voice again, and he said, well, uh, of course, uh, please follow me. And he led him through the various hallways into the beautiful sanctuary space. And then it hit him. He remembered just in that moment that that was the summer, like so many big, beautiful, old Gothic churches, it was undergoing renovations. So there was scaffolding up everywhere, and the once beautiful sanctuary for that summer had been greatly diminished. And Richard felt just a little bit embarrassed, and he said to Rod Stewart, you'll have to forgive the appearance, uh, but the church right now is under construction. And without missing a beat, Rod Stewart turned to him and said, well, Reverend, isn't the church always under construction? Well said, Rod Stewart, well said. And I have a hunch, just, just a hunch, that the Apostle Peter, writing today in God's word to us, would agree that the church is always under construction.
Let's get a handle on this piece of scripture. We don't uh, journey into 1 Peter all that often in the church as we preach. We take little uh, snippets of 1 Peter as we please. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 is the great kind of apologetics uh, verse. Uh, Always be ready to give your witness, your testimony uh, to those who ask, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Right? That's kind of a popular one we pick out. There's another verse from 1 Peter that I've seen around Northern Ireland over the years as I visit kind of in this season. But this scripture passage today, we have to get a handle on, on what's going on. First of all, who is writing this passage? You say, well, okay, Canadian preacher, that's fairly obvious. It's Peter. Yes, but we know that sometimes there are those who would write uh, under the name of a famous apostle. The Bible scholars that I've talked to, certainly in Canada, would say this is an example of a letter that they are fairly certain uh, that the authorship is the Apostle Peter himself, likely with the help of some others, including Silas, that he mentions later on. We're looking somewhere probably in the mid-40s AD when this letter is written. So where's Peter? Where is he hanging out? If you look at the end of 1 Peter, the Bible says where he is. He's in Babylon. But then right away you stop and say, whoa, hold on a second. Last week we looked at that great story from the book of Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You remember what my real estate agent calls them? My shack, your shack, and a bungalow. We had the great story of the fiery furnace, the Babylonian barbecue, that time and... uh, 586 BC when uh, Babylonians rolled into Jerusalem and hauled off the best and the brightest back to Babylon. That was the time when the Babylonian Empire was at its height, at its power. But we're not in 586 BC, not when Peter's writing. You can advance your clocks. We're somewhere in the 40s AD to go to Babylon in that time, would just be a small provincial town. So why is Peter there? Or is he? Most scholars would suggest it's actually code speak that's being used here, just as in the book of Revelation. Babylon stands for Rome, for the imperial power of Rome. It's likely that Peter is actually writing this letter from Rome in the 40s. So who is he writing to? What are we dealing with today? Who are the original folks who would have handled this text, these words that we've been given? It's a letter that's written to the province of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today, a place of such unrest in the last several weeks, beginning with the bombing at the airport in Istanbul, continuing to the failed coup this week. He's writing to this Roman province of Asia, and he names the various places that he's writing, places that had small, fledgling house churches founded by the Apostle Paul and other Christian missionaries. He's writing clearly, if you go through the letter, to a church that feels discouraged, diminished, and under persecution. And these words must have been such a source of encouragement for these people. The phrases that are used, once you were 
uh, as one translation says, I prefer it, nobodies. I like that. Once you were nobodies, but now with God, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And he encourages them to crave the spiritual milk, to be like infants in need of God's provision. Which is very interesting, because when you have a look at some other folks who have commented on this passage, as Presbyterians, we always invoke, of course, WWJD, what would John do, as in John Calvin. So it's always good to have a little look at Calvin's commentaries on these passages, unless you find yourself in the book of Revelation, because Calvin was not brave enough to write a commentary on the book of Revelation, which I always find interesting. But what Calvin said about this, it's interesting that here, the image of an infant needing milk is a good thing. Where if you look in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul kind of slams the Corinthians. In other words, grow up, uh, get off the milk, get onto an an adult kind of uh, diet. But here, Peter is saying to a persecuted, scattered church, be like infants, Rely on the grace of God is essentially what he's encouraging. It's a very godly man back in Canada. He was uh, one of my teachers of preaching when I was a a student. And then ironically, years later, uh, he hired me on at the college. Uh, His name is Stephen Ferris. And uh, Stephen describes uh, being a student himself for the ministry at Knox College in Toronto And uh, they were having a look at the passage in Bible class uh, where Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the teacher was trying to explain this passage and uh, came up with kind of a unique way. He said, uh, "So, so what is it about becoming like a child that's so important? And a student uh, put up his hand and said, Professor, Uh, it's because children are all innocent and wonderful. And the professor said, you, sir, are clearly not a father. You don't know what it's like to have kids. And so the class was a little less adventuresome in in offering a guest. So another hand goes up and says, well, it's because children are always obedient and listen to their parents. And the professor said, you have not met my children. And so the class kind of went silent, and no one offered a guess. And then this would have been in the 1960s. The professor pulled out a $20 bill, which probably would be more like $100 Canadian today, a 50-pound note. And he scanned the classroom, and there was one student who was a mature student at that time, quite unusual in the seminary. He had served in the Canadian Armed Forces, a bit of a gruff guy, and Uh, not someone who uh, would take anything from others. He was a very proud man. And the professor went over and he handed the man a $20 bill. And he said, uh, I will give you this, uh, but you can't give anything in return. And and the man pushed the money away. He said, "Uh, no, professor, I can't take that from you. That's, That's your money. I couldn't possibly. And he picked up the $20 bill. And he said, now who can answer why Jesus wants us to become like a child? He said, what would happen if I gave this $20 bill to a child? And they all lit up. And someone said, 
the child would grab it and run down to the corner store and buy all kinds of candy. Well, probably, the professor said. But he would take the money and never think of having to pay it back, simply enjoying the gift as a gift. God's grace. Peter says to this persecuted, scattered church, crave the pure spiritual milk. Be like infants before God. I visited some of the sites that this letter was originally sent to. They're sites that are mentioned right in 1 Peter. Been there a couple of times and leading pilgrimage tours. I remember the first time I went to places that are named in today's scripture, like Pontus, uh, the province of Galatia, the stunning region in central Turkey, Cappadocia. And I remember having a mix of feelings when I would visit there. It is always amazing to read scripture in the place where it was uh, intended. But I remember having this mix of emotions um, of of included sadness and um, almost discouragement. Because if many of you, of course, have visited Turkey and the coast and the vacation areas, but if you go inland to where the Christian church was once so strong and now has almost completely died out, it can be discouraging. You stand in Istanbul in the Hagia Sophia church, a church hundreds of years after Peter wrote his letter. He could have never imagined this monstrosity, this massive building dedicated to the glory of God that today is part decommissioned mosque and part museum. Kind of an odd feeling. Or you go out to a place like Cappadocia where this letter was intended and you visit these cave churches with the most beautiful murals painted on the walls of biblical scenes. And and you know you can almost, if you listen carefully enough, you can almost hear the chatter of the Christians who once lived there. You visit the places where They slept and where they ate and where they prayed. Every now and then you turn a corner and you see what's left of a fresco. Maybe half of Christ still blessing his church. It was visiting Turkey, the place where this letter was sent, coming back to North America that um, really worked on me as a Christian leader and drove me deeper and deeper into my curiosity about the purpose of the church, the theology of the church, that fancy word that's on your bulletin cover, ecclesiology. Church leaders tend to throw these $10 words around a little bit, but theology of the church, ecclesiology. I began to to dig deeper and to wonder about the connection between the mission of the church and the church itself. Began to to read more in a a new area of theology called uh, missional theology that looks uh, back to the work of a UK bishop, Leslie Newbegin, who returned from India and was surprised after so many years away to find a United Kingdom that uh, was sagging, the church was sagging under the forces of secularity. So he applied his missionary skills and mindset 
not to foreign fields, but to the home country. In North America, uh, there is someone who uh, is uh, almost of that stature of Leslie Newbegin. His name is uh, Daryl Guter. Daryl has just retired from Princeton Seminary in New Jersey and now is with us in Vancouver as our scholar in residence at our Center for Missional Theology. His book in 1998, Missional Church, uh, drew together a number of scholars who were wrestling with the church in North America that had enjoyed such growth and such influence through the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s And then the mainline churches, at least, including Presbyterianism, started to drop off. And they're trying to figure out why. And there was this sense in which they were starting to uncover the layers where to be a good citizen and to be a good Christian for so long went hand in hand. That essentially the purpose was to show up, to support the church, and to live a good moral life. We would value churches in what I call noses and nickels. Are there enough people in the church, and is the budget being met? But what was slowly lost was that sense of mission. Mission was something only that was done in foreign countries, or maybe in the impoverished areas of urban areas and cities. So missional theology was an opportunity to to look again and say, why do we gather here? What is the purpose of a place like this? And to name areas where we have lost our way. Now, we live in a beautiful place in Vancouver in British Columbia. I noticed on the back of the uh, London Times newspaper yesterday, they were advertising a, a trip to Canada and uh, suggesting all the wonderful things you could do in Vancouver. I thought, oh, that, that's kind of nice. That's, that's where I live. It's, it's a beautiful place, and my family lives on what's called the North Shore of Vancouver. That's through Stanley Park over the Lionsgate Bridge, and where all the beautiful North Shore mountains are, the famous Suspension Bridge, Grouse Mountain, Sky Ride, and so forth. We have a volunteer organization on the North Shore of Vancouver. It's called North Shore Rescue. And many of us uh, give financial support to this organization. And its core mission, its core purpose, is that whenever anyone gets lost, and they do almost every day, somewhere on the North Shore Mountains, volunteers with their mountain gear go out and rescue this person. They have their hiking gear, they have helicopters, they have all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking recently as I was doing some writing about Uh, What would happen if the North Shore rescue lost its sense of purpose and mission? Just uh, a couple years ago, they opened a beautiful new building, a facility, to house all of their volunteers, to train them, uh, and to store their equipment for the sake of mission. But I began to wonder, well, what would it be like if an institution like that over time started to admit members into its organization that had no interest in going out to rescue people in the mountains. They just wanted to join for the garage sales or the, uh, the various social events and that kind of thing. What if that continued and over time, an institution that's core mission was rescue ended up having no one in it that understood how to go out and help people in trouble? I think you can see where I'm 
going with this, how I'm teasing out that there are many churches, at least in North America, that have lost that core sense of mission, of going out to seek and to save the lost, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's something that the professional minister does, but certainly not people in the pews, they'll say, outsourcing their vows of baptism to paid clergy. But missional theology is an opportunity for us to say, actually, it's not that the church has a mission, but God's mission has a church. That actually what's going on here is the very nature of God is missionary. As the Father has sent the Son, has sent the Spirit, sends the church, we are sent out into the world to be missionary disciples, a phrase that comes from Pope Francis, missionary disciples, that as we come into this place, we are equipped, we are trained, we are encouraged to go out and to reach into the corners, in this case of Belfast and beyond. Think about all of the conversations that God will place you in this week, in the city and beyond. If it was only the opportunity for one person, for the minister, to be a witness for Christ, we would be in trouble. The great theologian of the last century, Karl Barth, once said that the problem of the church in Germany in the 1930s was that there was confusion. There was a sense that a Christian was simply someone passively enjoying the benefits of the gospel. I'm saved, I'm going to go to heaven, that's great. Karl Barth said, actually, for all Christians around the world, the purpose of being a Christian is to be a witness, to testify, to find in words and actions ways to describe the glory of God in Jesus Christ. What we find when we go out into the world with the lens, with the glasses on, seeing a kingdom vision, is that God gives us all kinds of opportunities to speak our faith and to live our faith that can change people's lives for good. A friend of mine is in Calgary, and he's had a a wonderful revival ministry in the downtown. It's kind of an artsy area, lots of uh, great artists and musicians, and he's drawn them into the church. Uh, He started with a, a church of about 20 folks that was ready to close and over a decade, it now worships about four or 500 people, all ages. Uh, it's a wonderful place, an encouraging place to visit. Uh, my friend, he's a little off the wall. He does some things sometimes I wonder, oh, I'm not sure I'd be brave enough to do that. Uh, a tradition that's re-entered the mainline church in Canada uh, that, at least when I was growing up, was seen only as a, as a Catholic um, action was uh, Ash Wednesday. Now, most mainline churches will at least mark Ash Wednesday as the beginning of Lent, and many churches will actually have the ashes offered. So my friend had a, a service plan for that evening, and he said to his assistant, he said, you know, we're not going to get many people out here to this service uh, tonight. He said, I'm not sure that's kingdom work. Uh, I think we need to take ashes out onto the street and his assistant looked terrified. Uh, and he said, go, go ahead, get the stuff ready, and, and I'll meet you in a couple of minutes and put his clergy collar on. And he said, oh, he shouted after him, make a sign, say free ashes, that, that'll be good. 
And in a few minutes, they were wandering the downtown streets of Calgary, uh, and they uh, went to the busiest intersection in Calgary, Alberta, and his assistant put up the sign, Free Ashes, Ash Wednesday, and he, my friend stood there with his bowl of his ashes, and they just waited. They were a witness in the downtown core of one of Canada's largest cities. Now, what happened is, as you expect, there was a mix of reaction. There were some people uh, who said, uh, you're crazy, I don't believe in God, you know, what are you doing, all that kind of stuff. We have our angry atheists in Canada as well. There were people who politely crossed the road and went by on the other side. And then there were people who stopped and said, thank you, I I haven't been able to get to church today, I I would love some ashes. And then just as they are about to pack up, my friend said that uh, a pickup truck slowed down and it looked like um, uh, one of those big uh, trucks in America that have the gun rack in the back and the flags, and uh, there was a big guy, long hair and tattoos, and, and looked, a, looked a little intimidating to my friend. And he rolled down the window, and he pointed at my friend with the ashes. And my friend stepped back a little bit. And he said, uh, like this, come here. So my friend went around to the other side, and the gentleman said... Uh, are those ashes? And my friend said, said yes. And he said, uh, I need those. He said, uh, Reverend, he said, I, I haven't had a very good life. And he said, I'm, I'm dying of cancer, and I'm trying to get right before it's too late. And so in the middle of a busy intersection in a Canadian city, My friend dipped his thumb in the ashes and made the sign of the cross on this gentleman's forehead. Remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. For folks like that, who say, I'm trying to get right before it's too late, do you think the language of crave pure spiritual milk makes sense? I do. For a church that is full of elder siblings and prodigals, as we discussed, our purpose is to be sent forth as a witness into the world. Now, some people would say, oh, a church that focuses just on mission outside of it will quickly dwindle. After all, why do we gather here? Why do we worship God? But this becomes the core moment in the week of our equipping of our training. It, too, is a witness. The way that we treat strangers, visitors, and each other in the church may, in fact, be one of the strongest witnesses possible. Years ago, when I was at seminary in Toronto, I was assigned a a student charge small rural church north of Toronto. It was a lovely little church with just a handful of people in it, and I'm sure my preaching managed to diminish the attendance even further. I drive up and down what we call Highway 400, which is the main highway out of Toronto headed north. In that day, there was a theme park, it's still there, called Canada's Wonderland. But around the theme park was farmer's fields, nothing. If you visit Toronto today, it's entirely built up with housing stock all around it. 
But at the time, it was going up and forth throughout the year to this church. And all of a sudden, this enormous sign appeared in a farmer's field one day as I was driving along. And it advertised future subdivisions of homes that were coming. And for us as Canadians, you advertise homes by putting homes on, and then you, you add the mom, dad, 2.5 kids or whatever, all playing street hockey out front, you know, kind of encouraging people to move north of the city and buy a home. And, and I noted that, and then I noted them building something in the corner of the farmer's field. Now, a couple of months later, I was going up, and it was one of those days the weather was terrible. It wasn't sure whether it was going to rain or snow or both. And so I was early to my church meeting, and so I pulled off the highway, and there in front of me was this little building they had been working on earlier. It turned out it was a, what we would call a show home. Before you build the massive subdivision of homes, you build just one house so that prospective buyers can come in and have a look and get an idea of what their home may look like. And so I parked the car and I went in to warm up a little bit. The, the heater in my vehicle wasn't working very well. And I was greeted at the door by the salesperson. And he showed me around the house. I think he could tell that I had no intention of buying. But he was very good at his job. And he was friendly and showed me the high-end stainless steel appliances. And invited me to sit in the living room and the rich Corinthian leather couch and the roaring fireplace. And as I sat there, I I looked out through the window of this show home, and all I could see was muddy farmer's fields. And it was as if he was reading my mind. The salesperson said, I know it's very difficult for you to imagine, but one day, everything out there will look like it is in here. I left and I drove to the church and that phrase just worked on me again and again. I arrived at this little church and I sat with the elders and had a time of prayer and I told them the story. I began to wonder, what if that's church? What if our gathering here is like a show home? We live within God's story of creation, of fall, of covenant, of Christ, of church. And we await one day, by God's grace, consummation. But until that day, when we look out and everything out there is as it is here, we continue to gather, to worship, to wait, and to pray trusting that God will use us to be a witness for the sake of the world Christ died to save. Let us pray. Loving God, to a discouraged and scattered community of Christians, You spoke through the Apostle Peter, reminding them to return as infants, to crave the pure spiritual milk of the gospel, that Christ alone is the bedrock, the foundation, the cornerstone 
of the church. He is our living word. May the way that we act, the words that we choose in this place, and when our time is concluded here, scattered throughout the region, be a most glorious witness to you, O God. We pray in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.